Giant Penny, Episode 4, George R. R. Martin's Wild Cards. Where do we begin? Well, first let's update the fact about the television show. After the popularity of Game of Thrones, I'm sure they looked at what else has this guy written or what else is out there in this geek culture that could be this big. And so they're, they're developing a TV show based on wild cards. And I think Georgia R. R. Martin, you can, why don't you explain his role? It's not truly an authorship. Um, it, it was a unique kind of project, but I would say the most significant other in the project from start to finish was what's her name? Snodgrass. Is it Melinda? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Melinda Snodgrass was, was sort of, he's described her as his right hand man. Those are his words. And she will be an executive producer. She will be intimately involved start to finish. And they expect to, to launch it probably within about a year. Why don't you tell us kind of what the, the primi- how, how Wild Cards worked as a project, kind of when it was brought out and what it was. George R. R. Martin was part of a group of writers in, all based in New Mexico. Who, uh, oh, were, I didn't know that. Yeah, they were part of a role-playing game group. And um, one, of, one of them... Uh, Victor Milan bought, uh, I think the book or the, it was a, it was a game about superheroes. It was a role-playing game where you created superheroes and played as a superhero. And uh, they created all these characters. And at, some, at a certain point, George R. R. Martin thought, you know, we're doing all these creative things and creating all these kind of creative stories with these characters. We're all writers. <laughs> so uh, why don't That's we right actually something. make some money out of it? So the, 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 the elevator pitch length summary of it would be, this is a, a series of stories and books that are based on, comic book style superheroes but it's 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 in a style that's like this this is more realistic more like a novel like it would appeal to someone that's not a comic book person but very much in honor of, of the comic book superhero tradition and in fact i think you would agree would you not none of the, the characters in wild cards are all original they're not it's not based on some other intellectual property but they are many recognizable pastiches of of comic book characters if not the powers the dynamic, the teenage superhero, the raging Hulk type superhero, the Superman type superhero, all of these kind of archetypes, you, you would find it a very recognizable extended universe that to me was always more similar to the Marvel Comics universe than it was the DC universe. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I just looked it up. I think it's actually 1987 that it finally came out. 87. So. But it, it's the same year as uh, Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. So it's kind of in the air, I guess, but they weren't consciously emulating something that was already going on. Um, they were just kind of tapped into that same notion of uh, taking those kind of familiar, innocent superhero tropes and, and doing something more quote unquote realistic with them and uh, exploring them in, in a more literary way or, you know, a deeper way or. Yeah. I mean, it, cause it was, it's the written a style that's sort of recognizable science fiction and action adventure, um, but then superheroes. And they came up with a very, Here's the thing I liked about them. They came up with a plausible premise so that you could get the, the, the idea of, well, how did this guy get to be a superhero out of the way? And it's sort of this, and it, you know, it's no wonder you liked it, Jason, because you, you know, you're the author of the, the, the uh, best there is at what he does, the X-Men book about Chris, Chris Claremont. X-Men was your favorite comic book. Wild Card is your favorite series of books. And both share this thing we talked about earlier in our previous episode about X-Men, this quantum mechanics thing where, where heroes just emerge 
kind of randomly. Now, in wild cards, it's, it's got this Terrigan Mist type explanation, and I'm, and I'm making an Inhumans reference from the Marvel Universe, but there's, a, there's an alien source of like poison gas that blankets New York back in the 40s, and this, this substance has the ability, but that doesn't always cause it, but it may cause humans to present with powers. And in the series, if you are uh, handsome slash normal looking and have superpowers, that is, you couldn't tell that the person was a superhero by looking at them, and it's a useful power, that's called an ace. And if you become either a deformed, freakish, or otherwise inhuman, that's a joker. But the, the random part is not that uh, it's just you, you may or may not get powers, and they may or may not deform you, and they may or may not be useful. Some of the powers are kind of not useful. But the part I like about it is for you can put aside what was the cause of the power. So you don't have to have a new superhero emerge and go, well, gosh, there's another one with super strength. There's another, you know, it, it, it becomes yeah. laborious to buy into so many different Stan Lee style origin accidents. And yeah. Wildcard said, I'm going to create a universe with one incident involving an alien ship that bathes us in this. And now we can have fun in this universe where just for generations, because it's intergenerational. Once the once the gas hit all these folks, it becomes this genetic strain of the population. And so we have third generation jokers and aces being born 40, 50 years later, all through the 20th century, basically. Yeah. And that was one of the uh, Melinda Snodgrass's innovations, I think, that because when they played the game and they were creating characters the old fashioned way, there was a role playing game, you know, comic book superheroes. So every character had his own origin. and. I think that was actually a sticking point early on was how do we make it plausible? And I think it was Melinda Snodgrass who came up with the, that sort of genetic virus idea. Um, well, you mentioned Melinda then, Snodgrass. And so now, now you've several times referred to the collaborative nature of their playing this game. And that would be the second major thing about wild cards that I like is that as a writing project, it's, it's kind of unique. And I guess something can't be kind of unique, but it's unique. And then, <laughs> Yeah, for those of you that haven't read it, it the first wild cards book, and by the way, there's a ton of these. There's like 24. He, they just kept on going. But I've only read the first three. Yeah. Jason's read all of them. But the first one is an anthology book where each story is by a different author, yet they take place in the same expanded universe. That is, they build them upon one another. And, you know, there, there's an editorial voice there that, that Martin supplied in the sense that he was in control of the project. I think he wrote the the little uh, italicized things in between the stories that kind of tied them together and told you kind of where you were. Cause the first one spans the World War II to the almost present era. And it's kind of this retrospective yeah. that shows that superheroes have been kind of there at every key moment in history, you know, on the grassy knoll and that kind of thing. The second one that I've read, it's still a multi-author project. It is still separate short stories, but instead of it being a retrospective of the 20th century, it is a contained invasion story. It's sort of a Galactus style planetary threat, but different authors with different voices write a coherent novel length work. And then it goes on from there. And the third one, I think that one is a single author novel or something, but, but they kept playing with the creative process in terms of what does Melinda Snodgrass contribute? What does this author contribute? I've never seen anything like it where that many creative voices put together something that's so, so unified and cool, you know? Yeah. 
And the third one, the third one is multi-author, and it, it's even it's written as if it's a single author. Yeah, that's what it is. It's, it's multi-author, but it doesn't have separate stories going. This one's by Melinda Snodgrass. It's just yeah. they all work together on it. Yeah, yeah, it's one novel, and it keeps shifting among points of view of six characters, and each of those six characters is written by a different author. But every, so every time you're cutting to a different character, you're actually cutting to a different writer too. Um, oh, we, and we've talked about this before. Do, and do you, do you think? Can we speculate that the what's the third one called? Yeah, let's do the first three names. The first one is called Aces High, right? The first one is just called Wild Cards. Wild Cards. The, the second the, one is Aces High. Second one is Aces High. The third one is Joker's Wild. They're all kind of plays on words from cards. Would you say that the the format of Joker's Wild, where it's like you said, it's like six characters, and when you get to a chapter, it'll say the characters, you know, it'll identify, it'll kind of where we're at. It's advancing a single story with the voice of the character. Well, what other book does that remind you of? Game of Thrones. Right. Song of Ice and Fire. So George R. R. Martin basically got inspired at that as a storytelling format in the multi-author context and then went and did a single author project where he still used that, that way of shifting voices and chapter by chapter. Because for those of you who haven't read Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire, that's how it does. If it's a Tyrion chapter, whatever character you're talking about, it shifts to that character's. It's not first person. We're like, I'm Tyrion. I'm floating down this turtle river forever. It's more like... Uh, and neither is Wild Cards, but yeah, it's a third person cards. limited. Clearly from the perspective, although told in third person. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things, one of the reasons I would that I was kind of proselytizing about Wild Cards, because for anyone who likes Game of Thrones, Meanwhile, you know, superheroes have had this huge surge in popularity over the last 10 years or so. Here's this project that's both George R. R. Martin, the man who did Game of Thrones, which is so popular, and it's superheroes. And then a third element of that is that so many of the things that he does narratively in Game of Thrones are things that he kind of learned while doing wild cards in the sense that, for example, what you said, the switching point of view from one character to another, which was done out of necessity with wild cards because you had different writers. He then did it, and we don't have to speculate. He he re, he has said explicitly in interviews that he realized doing wild cards what an effective technique that is. So he recapitulated that technique deliberately with Game of Thrones, even though it was no longer a necessity because it was just a single writer project. And then the other thing with uh, that, he, I think he seems to have learned from from his time doing wild cards is the sort of uh, dramatic capital of killing off beloved characters. <laughs> Yeah. And wild cards kind of happened by accident. They, um, it was kind of a, a, a sort of happy accident of the multiple writers technique because they, they, they mapped out the first three books and wanted the third book to have this storyline without being too spoilerish. this character, this villain with a revenge scheme killing off uh, the characters who kind of foiled him at the end of book two. And so they wanted to create a sense of danger. They wanted some of the characters to actually die in that third book. So right from the start, they, they created some characters that they knew were going to die in book three. Uh, so, and this, again, this speaks to the multiple writers aspect, creating these surprising and unusual circumstances, is that when they were putting together book two, um, these cannon fodder characters that were earmarked for death in book three, uh, different writers kind of looked at them and said, oh, you know, this one would be a good one to use in my story. And then another writer said, I'm, I'm going to use that one too. Uh, so by the end of that book, this character that was always meant to just be kind of a filler, uh, just a nameless character, 
uh, a future casualty uh, ended up being more developed than probably would have happened if you'd only had one writer working on it. Suddenly you've got uh, certain personalities emerging, uh, fictional personalities within the story that end up being uh, beloved by fans, some fans anyway. Uh, there's one character in particular who ends up emerging as a really kind of fan favorite in book two and then is killed off kind of brutally at the beginning of book three. And so you can kind of reprise your um, rhetorical question when you were talking about the shifting points of view. What other book does that sound like? I guess if you talk about a character becoming beloved over the course of the second book and then being surprisingly brutally murdered in the third book, again, what other series does that remind you of? So some of the slaughter in, in Wild Cards book three is kind of a, a rough draft of the much more intense slaughter that you see in the third Ice and Fire novel. I don't I think remember. Really reacted to that. Who, who were the fan favorites? Because I actually haven't experienced it much as a communal thing. I read it because uh, you recommended it, and sure enough, it was like, okay, Game of Thrones is good, and this is kind of a different project that may have something in common with it in terms of the quality. But I didn't really experience it at the time or communally. So what, you know, which characters were everybody's favorites? Uh, should I, I probably shouldn't mention the one who gets killed at the end of the Just kind of mix it in is with that. that. Like, like, don't reveal which one gets it whacked. So list at least three. We'll know one of them dies, but. <laughs> well, I think the, the fan favorite characters, I know um, the sleeper is one that I think people reacted to really well. He's kind of one of the first ones to be introduced. Uh, he wakes up as a different hero every time he goes to sleep. He wakes up with a different power or something. What is it? Yeah, he's in a, he's an unusual case because he gets the virus reinfects him every time he goes to sleep, and so he gets a different superpower. Or sometimes he's a Joker. Yeah, meaning he doesn't have a power. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that uh, emerged. I like, believe it or not, I like Metro Man, and he's not even a, a, a he's not even an ace. He's like a android, a super android. Modular man. Modular man. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, that's he's another one. Yeah, he falls yeah, in love it's... with somebody. He's like an android who gets a sad tummy because of somebody I can't remember, but it, he just—I found him compelling. Oh, I love him. I love that character. Yeah, uh, and then uh, Kid Dinosaur. Do you remember him? Yeah, yeah, he's the one you kind of love. And for those of you that haven't read him, there's a really attractive paperback series out now. I've been buying the the, the sort of mass market paperbacks. They have these new newly commissioned painted covers. They're not brand new, but their new vintage because if you go get the old yeah. ones they look really like dated but the new ones just look really attractive so i'm gonna i'm gonna just read them all as they come out in that new edition why don't you tell us the story because you're a big grrm fan probably because of wild cards first and you recently got a chance to to, to express your fanboy love directly to his face um, <laughs> i did yeah there was a um well yeah the the thing with uh wild cards is that it kind of it actually kind of died right before right before game of thrones began the last wild cards book for a long time was the 15th volume which came out in 95 and the first game of thrones uh, or the first ice and fire book which is titled game of thrones uh came out in 96 but as game of thrones became so popular and, and george rr R. martin became uh verging on a household name he had the cachet if you like and this was around the turn of the millennium right around 2001 2002 uh martin was able to restart wild cards again 
with uh, some of the the same writers who wrote the, the first 15 books over the course of the 80s, uh, and then also recruit a whole bunch of new writers. Yeah, it's, a, it's an opportunity to do that sort of Tom Clancy, James Patterson, Clive Cussler thing where you branded it with the name, and he has like a co-author, Minions, that help him. But with Wild Cards, <laughs> it was a legitimate basis to do that because it was always a multi-author project edited by Martin, and so now he's more popular than ever, and so they are able to without even really being commercial and crass, kind of do it and put out more content because yeah. there's more writers to work on it. So there's, there's a pretty large uh, pool of wild card. They call them the wild cards, the wild card trust. So a bunch of them did a, it was the largest, they've done it before where they had like maybe seven or eight of the wild cards writers all at the same convention to do signing. But in Kansas city recently, it was the largest. There was, I don't remember how many, it might've been up to like 20, 20 of them all in a big room and so many of us wildcard super fans were there with um, our dog-eared old 1980s copies of the books to get those books uh, signed. George R. R. Martin was one of them, Melinda Snodgrass as well. Uh, what did you take it, to get signed? I took all every book, every single, all 20. Oh, so they would sit there and just sign a whole bag of books? They did. Yeah, when I, when I got there, they were like, well, you know, George, first of all, he's not going to sign any Ice and Fire books. <laughs> so don't bring anything that's not Wild Cards in there. And they, they also said that George George himself would only be signing the brand new Wild Cards book. A new Wild Cards book just came out, and that was kind of the impetus to do the signing. And I was like, well, I got a big box. <laughs> I got this big crate full of 20. He's only going to sign one of them. But then when, when I actually went in there, yeah, they were all, everyone was pretty, pretty cool. I mean, very cool. Uh, the actual authors were cool. The people running it, before you got in to meet the authors, the people running it were, they were the ones coming on strong with the rules saying, nah, just the new one, just, <laughs> or you can buy one of the old ones that we got in this table. And I said, well, I've got ones that I've owned for 20 years. And then like you were the top fan where you like, was there kind of like a, I think there was somebody in front of me that had a lot of them. He kind of broke the ice. <laughs> so by the time it got to me, everyone was pretty cool. And yeah. And George R. R. Martin signed every single one that I put in front of him. Did you have any, repartee with him any kind of interesting remarks nothing earth-shattering when he saw that i had every single book and recognized that i was a huge fan he asked me about favorite characters the news about the tv show had only just broken at that point so he was asking a lot of fans about favorite characters he, he, he had posted something on his blog like uh leave leave something in the comments about your favorite wild cards characters because we can't put them all in the show because there's dozens and dozens <laughs> So we want to put the fan favorites on the show. So he asked me that. He was like, well, you've been a fan since the beginning, so who are your favorite characters? What'd you tell him? I told him uh, uh, Jay Aykroyd, who, he's in the third one. You, you've come across him, right? I think. The, the private eye. He's the private eye who can point at you and make you disappear. I don't think so. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> you got to read the third one again. He's in there. All right, I don't think he's that prominent. I listened to it on tape and read it. I don't remember him. <laughs> What you remember? Oh, Ace name? Uh, Pop and Jay. Yeah, Pop and Jay. I remember him. Maybe they don't focus on the private eye stuff so much. He's he's in a lot of the material with uh, you know the 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 guy who runs the restaurant. Yeah. Who can control his weight and all that. Yeah. He's friends with him. Yeah, I remember Pop and Jay. Yeah. I like the Peter Parker and the turtle guy. Uh, and for those who don't know, there's yeah. a there's a a very clear pastiche of 
Peter Parker in the sense of maybe pastiche is the wrong word, but it's it's the one in that wild card universe that is the angsty high school, never gets the girl, has superpowers and uses them secretly for good. But his power is teleportation, uh, not teleportation, telekinesis. He can move objects through the air and he gets so good at it that the, the most efficient thing for him to do is to make this big tank like turtle that's protective and he he basically flies around in it fighting crime because he can move it with his mind and he's inside it protected and i think he goes by the name of the turtle doesn't he yeah 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 i mean he and he has tv screens in it where he he doesn't even have to be out poking his head up to see he can basically see from inside and do stuff that yeah. was my favorite my favorite was the the construction worker hulk guy the sort of man of the people labor union Hulkster, I can't remember what his name, Blockbuster or something like that. What was it? He was a uh, hard hat, right? Hard hat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually like the first one. I, you've, you've read so many. I'm sure the, your favorite's like number 14 or something, exactly. but I've only read the first three. <laughs> I liked them in the order they're written. I like them all. They're all great. Your recommendation was totally <laughs> successful. They weren't just passes. They were like, people should read these. But I liked the first one because of its epic scope in terms of it was just it was like reading Watchmen or something. It was like, here's the whole 20th century if it had gone differently. You know, yeah. I, I love the fact that there was a, a Gary Powers sort of Cold War spy one. There was the 40s pulpy Airboy one. I think it was Jet Boy. Uh, there was, I mean, for every kind of archetype era, you could think there was a superhero. I love that. The second one, I loved the story. I thought it was just sort of great the way it was woven together, galactic level invasion with a bunch of different subplots. The third one was good, but by that time it was, I guess that story kind of, I guess it takes place over 24 hours. I mean, it's basically the yeah. events of either a day or a day or two. I didn't realize until halfway through it, like kind of what's happening. This is the bad guy from the second one with a bunch of allies killing good guys. Right? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think, I, I think for me, the third one, what's cool about the third one is that it's, it takes it to the next level in terms of how to weave multiple authors together. Yeah, to actually make it just one book. But I do agree with you that the second one is actually a little more exciting. And the, the, sort the story of... was exciting. It was fantastic. They get that ship. I mean, yeah. it was just a good old fashioned man. That was awesome. They just did that. You know. Yeah, I was gonna. I'm glad you brought up the one about the uh, working class or the hard hat guy. Listeners at home, before we started recording, we talked about politics for about an hour because that particular story has is kind of a great because it's actually got two aces in it or three, I guess. I need to read it again with like a Trumpy kind of post <laughs> yeah. idea on it. Cause there's, there's two characters in that. There's the, the hard hat guy who's like hard hat, the working class kind of guy. And then there's uh, the lizard King, the Jim Morrison kind of pastiche. Yeah. He's the lead singer of a doors like group, but then he also is an ace and he's, he's got a whole army of hippies behind him at Berkeley. And, and they're doing a concert at Berkeley and hard hats. Like, hey, I can't remember why it was so good, but it was like two, American icons, the sort of, you know, uh, like you said, Jim Morrison, rock star, a left coast liberal, and this hard hat character was like this proto Trump voter that I, I can't remember <laughs> what it was that, that that resonated with me because it's been a couple of years since I read it. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool. I, I like that one because it actually is kind of doesn't really play favorites between those two characters. No, I guess you probably wouldn't know this but the the author of that story victor milan uh is uh i believe he's libertarian 
Yeah. You can tell from that story that there's sort of something other than doctrinaire leftism. There's sort of this yeah. something where he's kind of working out, uh, you know, he, he does not have a lot of, he doesn't portray the sort of Berkeley liberal, because I think it's said in the 60s, right? Yeah, 1969 or 70. Yeah, so it's it's the part of the story that attempts to do the sort of hate Ashbury, you know, summer of love versus the guy wearing a hard hat, you know, because that's, I mean, that's what was going on in the country. And most, uh, it just seems like a lot of writers don't want to admit there's something very conflicted about those times. They portray it as sort of, oh, great, the hippies, you know, came along. And uh, that story is kind of like, well, no, what about the hard hat guy? I mean, you, you're reading the story and you're, you're kind of liking uh, both sides. Yeah. And I, as far as favorite characters, I, it was yeah. kind of, you know what? It was kind of like, it was kind of like Kent State Massacre, but maybe the guys that did the massacring were okay. <laughs> I kind of reminded me of just some kind of one of those incidents, those larger than life 60s incidents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and nobody gets massacred. And it, so it's okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's actually uh, the character, neither of those two characters, I guess, but the, there's a third ace who shows up at the end, and then he, he shows up again in book two, and he's kind of like a Dial H for Hero guy, where he swallows different chemicals and can become like five different heroes, depending on which chemical he takes. Do you remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. I that, he's one of my favorites. They all had such cool names, too. Captain Trips was the... Captain Trips, that's a great name. <laughs> he's actually probably my... I really like Victor Milan's writing it. Captain Trips is kind of his signature character. And it, I love that character because he's got so much potential because he's sort of like five and one, you know? Yeah. And, uh, well, I encourage everybody listening to this that uh, if you want to get ahead of the curve and kind of be reading the thing that's going to be the next cool thing, I think Wild Cards is really cool. Who knows? The production values of the show may not pan out in terms of just putting, you know, being quality. Uh, but it, I would think that the message of Game of Thrones and Westworld and, and all of this is you know, spend the budget, spend the millions per episode. And, you know, because it's, it's not unlike, uh, remember that show that NBC had called Heroes? Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, that, that had a following and that was the same. I never, I actually watched the first season and then I, I drifted. I never got to the sort of finale explanation of why humans were just presenting with powers all of a sudden. But Wild Cards is a lot like that. So it has a chance to really kind of reach that same audience, but it's way, way better in terms of just <laughs> the quality and the names of the characters and the stories they go through. You know, now's your chance to kind of read them. It should be hitting. They haven't, they haven't yet announced exactly when it'll air. So the timing is probably not going to make it in 2017. I feel like we'd already know if it was going to premiere in 2017. Yeah, I don't know what the timeline is, but another thing for uh, sci-fi fans who, uh, if they don't recognize the name Melinda Snodgrass, she was uh, the head writer for uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, yeah. uh, season three. So she, as far as television sci-fi, she's got some, some got bona fides. <laughs> it takes me way back, because I used to, you know, what the wild cards for me were, were these novelizations of Star Trek. There's this brief moment in time where, okay, the show had been out, It's the show I grew up watching it in syndication, but I'm too young to have watched it in first run. But it was this popular thing in syndication all through the 70s. So I, I liked it. And then the movie came out. What was that 79? And that caused this relaunch of these, these pocketbooks. If you remember the brand called Pocketbooks, I think it's a Simon & Schuster label. So there was a whole series of paperbacks of new Star Trek adventures. They were commissioned novels. And I, I probably read like 40 of them. They were my favorite thing. Melinda Snodgrass wrote some of them. 
I remember that. You're, you're old like me, Jason, but the younger generation mm-hmm. will never understand. We used to uh, crave paperbacks because yeah. that was a window to sort of geek culture. There wasn't an internet. And a lot of us like comic books, but those you, you start searching for more things like that. And paperbacks were where it was at. I would buy movie novelizations. Like if I liked Raiders of the Lost Ark, I would go get Raiders of the Lost Ark paperback and read it. If I liked Conan, I'd go read Conan novels. I would get Star Trek novels. And yeah. Wild Cards, I think, was marched right into that stage. In other words, 1987 was not... It was no accident that, that was kind of the right time to launch that project is because that was a moment when paperback series of things were kind of the thing for geek culture. Yeah. Doctor Who novels were big. They were starting to novelize. It used to go in the shelves and there'd be like 29 Doctor Who novels. You know? Yeah, I used yeah. to love, I love those days. I, I would buy all those Star Trek novels too. I would just, right. It was just there, a whole shelf that was just lined with that logo. It's like, ah. Yeah. I thought it was great. It was heaven because you could you could always get another one. It's like if you really had a craving for one, just go back to the bookstore. There'll be like three more. No, and and uh, for the Star Trek novels, they put numbers on them, so they were like comic books. If I had, if I was missing number twenty one, I would search for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they still are putting out those, but yeah, it's, it doesn't quite have the same. Well, to me, the day the music died was when New Generation launched. I never liked it. Sorry, that was not what I was interested in. Plus, I, I it kind of hit at an age where I'd kind of moved on. I was in college for the launch of New Generation, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It proliferated too much then. Okay, now it's okay to have Star Trek stuff that doesn't even have Kirk in it. I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's too much. But there's this, it's this, this moment from about 1980 to about 1987 when Star Trek was kind of surging because that's when the movies were coming out and the paperbacks were coming out and it was all Kirk and Spock and it, I enjoyed it. I was much more of a Star Trek fan than a Star Wars fan at that time. Yeah, we've had the conversation before, although I guess our, our, our many listeners have not heard it yet, but <laughs> you've got the, uh, the Kirk-Spock theory of Star Trek. That that's Yeah. That it's that those two characters and their relationship that Star Trek is really all about. Yeah, and I tend to come down on that type of position on almost every property. I'll go, it's not the premise, it's the characters. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, Kirk Spock. People like Han Solo. Yeah, they also like the Star Wars universe. But I, I was glad to see that these new Star Wars movies, although they're going to have some completely new properties, they're still kind of building outward from the core group of characters that everyone, you know, loved in I'm not going to mention the prequels; those don't exist. But the the original series, it's still about the Skywalker family. It's still going to have Han Solo in it. There's going to be a Han Solo series of movies. I have no problem with that. I don't think that's derivative or hacky at all. I think it's the characters that people like, not the not the universe. They like the universe too, but give us the characters. And you gave me Star Trek with no Kirk and Spock. I'm like, that was what was special about it. Yeah, yeah. I unfortunately you. I came to your, your, I heard your argument too late in my life <laughs> because I was a kid, you know, I was nine, I guess, when Star Trek The Next Generation came out. And I had, I had had about four, four or five years of my dad showing me reruns of the old show and showing me the movies, you know, renting the movies on video, trying to get me into the Star Trek, which he more or less did. But then a new one came out and I was like, well, that was my dad's Star Trek. 
and this is mine. <laughs> yeah, it's not as good. It, it doesn't hold up as well. It probably doesn't. I, I need to go through and, but unfortunately, that I kind of grew up with that one, so now I, I can't ever totally join you in your Kurt Spock. I know, but they ruined it by if okay, this is even like New Generation, and they did Deep Space Nine. They did uh, uh, I forgot the one with yeah, you know, or whatever her name. Deep Space Nine is great. I never watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Star Trek New Generation, but once I saw it like one time. So when oh. I say I don't like it, I mean it doesn't appeal to me. I don't mean I'm judging it fairly. I just mean <laughs> I'm not really interested in watching. So it. when you say it doesn't hold up, you mean when you don't watch it now, it's just as bad as when you well, didn't watch it then. <laughs> I should say I've, I've taken a look at because we're living in the era of Netflix, and you think oh, maybe I could do that show, maybe I could do that show. Like I have some interest in watching Battlestar Galactica, the new one, because I've heard it's very good. And then I thought maybe I should do Deep Space Nine, or maybe I should do New Generation, and. I look at them and just, they look so cheesy. Uh, what's his name? Fraker. Such a terrible actor. Uh, Riker. <laughs> Riker. His real name is Jonathan Frakes, yeah. Yeah, he's Jonathan Frakes <laughs> in real life. Riker. Riker. I like it. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a... He is pretty bad. I'm not a fan, but I'm a follower uh, of Will Wheaton. Uh, he's real big into tabletop games. He does a YouTube show called Tabletop. And, you know, so I'm... I'm kind of aware of him and I watch tabletop and he's, I was a big fan of stand by me, which you remember that was his kind of the movie that made him a star. And I, I'm, I'm familiar with his whole Wesley Crusher thing did not go well. I can't separate new generation from having Wesley Crusher. I mean, I think that character was supposed to go places that, that they didn't end up going. So it seems like a, a giant, sad tragedy. To the whole show seems like a failure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, well, yeah. It's next generation, by the way. I've let you just run with calling it new generation, but oh yeah, yeah, next generation. And I look <laughs> at Patrick Stewart, and I go, "This man was meant to play Professor X. He cannot be the captain. He's so <laughs> as Professor X that I, I I do like him as Professor X, but I can't see him in any yeah. other role now. It is true, though. Yeah, I mean, I I I actually have watched more Next Generation: Deep Space Nine than I have of the original show, but. When I watch the originals, they actually they they hold up better for all the people make fun of the Shatner acting and stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna do a rewatch of those. They those have gotten much to the chagrin of everybody that bought the collectors, the Blu-rays of the original series. They've gotten down to like thirty nine ninety nine for the complete series on Blu-ray, I and mean, it's just gotten unbelievably affordable. Yeah, I, I grabbed them on DVD, and they they hold up in the sense that. When you watch Next Generation, it looks like '80s TV, but Star Trek was the, the old show. It looks, yeah, I mean, it looks like 60s, but it looks more like 60s cinema than like 60s TV, at least to me. Yeah. It feels more cinematic and more. Yeah, which I call timeless, not in the sense that uh, the styles are timeless, but it doesn't, just the production values have that sort of been her (laughs) uh, permanent look about them in terms of the quality. Yeah, for all the sort of weak costumes, I guess, and and that kind of thing, that there's something a little more. Yeah. It has the, I guess time was the word. Yeah. And wasn't it a filmation show or something? It was just the well done in terms of the photography of it. it was really good. Yeah. Yeah, it just had that kind of cinematic sort of sweep to it that the the later shows don't so, quite know. For a wild cards reader, I, I would say start at the beginning. And in fact, it's no tragedy if you don't get all the way through. Don't feel like this is a series that you have to be completist. Get a few under your belt starting at the beginning and you've got a sense of how good it is. Would you agree with that? Because you've read all of them. 
Or would you say, no, 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 you're missing it. You've got to read the 14th one, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I think it's probably fair to say it's kind of the opposite of what you were just saying with some, some franchises where it's all about character A. This wildcards is kind of more about the premise and the overall sort of it is world of it and the and the with any with any individual volume with maybe a couple exceptions you do get that sense of the multiple authors the the multiple voices and the beginning is probably the smartest place to start I know George R R Martin has uh, has said that uh, book I can't remember what number it is I guess it's number eighteen or something like that book eighteen inside straight it was uh, the first book after they had signed up with a new publisher. And so a lot of it feels very new and fresh. It still takes place in the same universe, of course. It's It's got kind of a, a restart kind of quality to it. So I know he said... Um, that yeah, because it was a tough sell when they're coming out with that book to go, you need to go read 17 books to appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. A book that says, if you're brand new to this property and you pick this up, you're going to not only have a good experience, but you're going to understand and it's enough of a reboot to where you're, you're ready to go. Yeah, they've kind of gotten into a, a, a scenario now where the books come out kind of as trilogies. So I, I think George R. R. Martin's kind of line is that any any start of a trilogy is a good place to start. Uh, you don't want to maybe start with book three of a certain triad, but I guess book 18, 19 and 20 is a trilogy, so 18 is good. 21, 22, 23, you want to get 21 and go online and see that stuff. <laughs> but I mean, at this point, I think the ones that are in print are the first five, is that right? Yeah. As they relaunch, yeah, they and then and then eighteen through to the most recent one, which is the twenty third. Yeah, they totally hold up. I read them, you know, recently within the past maybe two or three years, and uh, they're they're as good as uh, I would expect any new book today. They don't seem dated. They're not. They're just really uh, timeless. So yeah, I think those, thing. You don't have to two. worry. You don't have to worry that Martin's not going to finish them. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> There's that element of it too. I was going to say, I wonder if the TV show will be like. Uh, you know, we're finishing this for you, George Martin, like they're doing with Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, it is frustrating to me. Uh, this, I guess, goes to the other half of your question about you got to read book 14, but <laughs> in the sense that uh, there's the, there's a kind of a whole swath in the middle that are still out of print and they're, they're kind of slowly getting them back. But there's something a bit like a comic book continuity where there's something kind of cool about the more you read, the more dense it gets and the more references to past stuff and it's got kind of a tight continuity and there's all kinds of kind of clever things that happen if you keep going but for the fan who just wants to get their feet wet i think the first the first book yeah the first, first two book is so it is even like a i just every part of it i'll just have a memory there's a there's an ace who is a tv star in a cheesy kind of 50s sci-fi serial type show like a low budget buck rogers type show <laughs> uh, he feels like a burnout husk of a man because he's like what have i become i remember that and isn't he also someone that kind of like Sterling Hayden, like like name names in communist uh, in the in the communist uh, blacklisting and stuff? That's yeah, that's a different story, but yeah, yeah, right. Same character. That's yeah, Golden Boy. Yeah, Golden Boy. I mean, I pictured Golden Boy as like uh, Zap Brannigan from from uh, you know Futurama. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or Troy McClure from Simpsons. You know, I had that sort of Phil Hartman voice in my head where he's just sort of. <laughs> doing the shows he's selling the cereal and he just is like you know what have i done kind of guy yeah yeah there's a great yeah like yeah that, that that one involves the whole yeah house on american activities and there's a bit about the mccarthy red scare yeah. so the, like the, you said for every big political turning point in the yeah in we really enjoy it because it's kind of like a a commentary on every 
what you call political turning point. Uh, there's a wild card story that kind of embodies, the, you know, the Red Scare, the Cold War. The, like we we talked about Hard Hat and Lizard King is, is sort of the, the the sort of you know Kent State demonstration hippie type stuff. Uh, I guess it kind of I guess it kind of ends in the eighties. <laughs> That's the one thing is I read it and I'm like. But it's 2014. <laughs> that's true. Then like, you got it, you know, in the 80s, because that's when it came out. Yeah, they can. That's as far as they could go. <laughs> you should have waited till the year 2000 to write it, so it could be a whole century retrospective. You actually got to read them in real time after that. Yeah, yeah, um, kind of. It kind of brought forth the same sense of you know, you know, I'm a fan of the Watchmen movie, and nobody else but me seems to be. But I thought they did a good job with it. My favorite part is that retrospective opening with with Bob Dylan. You know, the times oh, yeah. that are changing and it kind of fast forwards to the whole century and shows how their world was different and had superheroes in it. That's kind of what the yeah. feeling I got from reading that first wild cards. Yeah, they, they almost feel that opening of Watchmen is almost should have been the opening to a wild cards movie. Yes. <laughs> it's strange how similar Watchmen is to wild cards. Uh, um, the difference being uh, everybody in wild cards is Dr. Manhattan, that is, they are a real superhero. But one of the cool things about Watchmen was sort of this alternate history. This is a world where superheroes emerged around the time of World War II. I think that was about when they were supposed to have kind of started being fashionable in Watchmen. Right, right. Reimagined American 20th century. What if there had been costume superheroes? And Wild Cards does the same thing. And it's not a copy of Watchmen because it was literally coming out at the exact same time. Yeah, it's it's an odd little coincidence, and it. I guess it's it feels like that's one of the points against wild cards when trying to recommend it, you know, because it's sort of like it sounds like a copy of Watchmen. It's like, but no, it was it was at the same time, and it was it's it's different enough, you know. It's uh, for all their similarities that you know. Yeah, I mean, Watchmen kind of takes a different tack. I mean, that's the the one thing that uh, truly saves wild cards is. At the end of the day, it's not the premise or the idea or the uniqueness of the multi-author voice. It's that, that what they put on the page is a good book. It's enjoyable to read. It is well-written. It is just, you know, if you're like, I would like to read a good novel. If it, if it failed that test, then it would be too derivative. Of, you know, it's just like, ah, eh, superheroes, Watchmen, whatever. But it's actually a pleasant surprise when you read it, how good it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not Shakespeare. It's just a... It's it's just an enjoyable superhero fiction book. Yeah, and uh, you kind of touched on it earlier, I think. But the the fact that it's all science fiction writers, it, it's it's a, it is superhero fiction, but it also has that kind of sci fi feel, yeah. which Watchmen doesn't so much. No, I guess it kind of does. And too. most of the time, when they're writing sci fi, by its very nature, sci fi has some sort of premise. You know, it wouldn't be science fiction if there weren't a premise that had to be invested in to to get across to the reader what is different about this world is it future is it alternate is it is there been technology technology whatever that's what science fiction is it, it posits some sort of scientific advance or change that puts the characters in a position that makes us want to read the book well this one was a bunch of science fiction writers but the the they didn't really have to labor on the premise and the world the world building was kind of the agreed upon rules that they had laid down and they could just use their skills as writers to go and write a, a great story with an interesting character and a plot 
And, you know, it was just like a liberating project for most of them. <laughs> you just, they kind of really prospered under it, it looks like to me. Yeah, I think the, the Golden Boy one's a good example because it, yes. it's, it's got the whole, it's, it centers on that aspect of American history. Yeah. And then also it does doesn't have to do any heavy lifting about why this guy has superpowers or anything. It just it tells yeah. what it amounts to a fascinating story about a about a somebody in the in that era of history in the fifties television actor. Yeah. Meanwhile it's got kind of cool sort of a lot of the again, I, I point to the Golden Boy one specifically, but it's true of a couple of uh, or a lot of them that it's got that kind of scientific plausibility in the in the prose and sort of the way the way the superpowers are described. Yeah. In a way that kind of comic books kind of lack because it's just a drawing of something shooting out of a guy's hand. <laughs> and I really, I really enjoy kind of just the science fictional prose of wild cards that it kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't really take the superpowers for granted per se, you know, it kind of yeah. describes physically what's happening in terms of the physics and, you know, and that, that kind of energizes it and, and makes it new. Yeah. It's written for an audience that might not be into comic books at all. So it doesn't just go, well, I, don't overthink it. This is a comic book. He, he could fly. Instead, it's like, what would I write if someone just picked this book up? I, I'm going to give. And it's actually very concise. It doesn't waste a lot of words. It's just like reading a book. Like, I almost believe this power exists. Right, right, right. And you get caught up in it and you realize, no, wait, Dinosaur Boy is a pterodactyl. That's not plausible <laughs> at all. <laughs> but uh, they make it seem that way. Yeah. Doesn't he turn into different dinosaurs? Yeah, yeah, he's like a pterodactyl, like, and uh, yeah. But they, but of course, there's that little layer of kind of quasi-realism where, uh, because of the conservation of mass, the dinosaurs are very small because he's just yes. a little kid. Yes. <laughs> so he can turn into a pterodactyl, but it's like a little three-foot-high pterodactyl. Yeah, he's tiny. That's why his yeah. dinosaur boy is a perfect name. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, the little touches like that that are sometimes used humorously, but a lot of times just kind of contribute to the sort of verisimilitude, I guess. Well, we should wrap so, up. Do you have any right. parting thoughts about wild cards or anything? Any parting thoughts? Yeah. I guess the last thing I would say is just that um, it's also kind of a cool, like, sampler or a la carte sort of way of discovering new writers. <laughs> because, obviously, if you're reading it just because you enjoy George R. R. Martin's prose, you only get a little bit of that per book, but I found it a great way to discover all these different writers that then I could follow and read their own novels. And, and they'll probably find a couple that you don't like as much. But Before we go, tell us uh, three writers besides Martin and Snodgrass that you discovered through this that you would say this is a good writer and I've read other things they wrote. Well, Victor Merlon, who we mentioned, did the Hard Hat versus Lizard King story. Uh, Walter John Williams, who, who did the Golden Boy and the Modular Man stories. No, he would probably be my favorite because those are two of my favorites. I was going to say, I think you might like a lot. I've, I've read, I haven't read a lot, but like maybe three or four of his other novels, but they're always uh, very, very good. Uh, there's a really good writer uh, who didn't join until the post Game of Thrones era named uh, Ian Tregillis. Ian Tregillis wrote this trilogy of books, The Milkweed Triptych, which uh, you also might like, Jay. It's, a, it's an alternate history World War II uh, characters with superpowers. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we can talk about that too. So yeah, Ian Tregillis, Victor Milan, Walter John Williams. Oh, yeah. Off the top of my head, there are plenty of other good ones. But Well, now's a good time because the TV show has been announced. They're introducing, like you said, they've come out with reprints or re-renewed editions of the first five. What they tend to do is it's a newly commissioned painted cover. You can recognize them. They look, they look updated. They put them out in trade paperback first, slightly like kind of oversized trade, meaning that one that's not the size. And then if it sells, 
they put out a mass market paperback, which is sort of the traditional paperback size. I prefer that size. So I've been buying them as they come out in that size. So what, what new readers could do is just say, well, I'm going to try it with one of those sort of recent editions. And if I like it, I'm just going to keep going. Cause you know, they'll probably just, I mean, they're reprinting everything that Martin ever touched right now because of Game yeah. of Thrones being the biggest thing ever. So you can probably just work your way through. And uh, if you get tired of it, you can stop and take a break. But good time to sort of be reading them this year as the, as the TV show comes along. Yeah, I would, I, I'd like to think that once the, if the TV show is big, they'll maybe up the rate of renewal for the old ones. But probably yeah. surely they won't put them out in a new trade dress and the official TV <laughs> version and try to sell more. Oh, God. I like to think they'll honor the program they've already started and not try to make more money. That would be nice. Yeah, the first five are out, and then I, I know the sixth one has already got a release date, so the first six will be easily available. All right, let's, let's go ahead and sign off then. See you for the next episode, everybody. Bye, guys.